So if you have your Bibles, open it to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus. Jesus. There's something about that name. It's the name of Jesus that casts out demons. The name of Jesus that saves. The name of Jesus that calms storms. The name of Jesus that heals. The name of Jesus that comforts. The name of Jesus that gives hope. The name of Jesus that infuriates lawless and loveless hearts. There is something special about that name. And in relation to everything surrounding the end times and the last days, uh, the rapture, the return of Christ, the second coming, the antichrist, the mark of the beast, all of these things, it's Jesus that we need to stay focused on. We don't look back, as we talked about this morning, looking back uh, will fill our heart with sorrow. We don't look around, that will fill our heart with anxiety. We don't look forward into the future, that will fill our heart with fear and despair. We look up to Jesus. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 22 verse 20, Behold, I am coming quickly. And the church responds, even so, Lord, come, come soon, come quickly. Are you ready? Are you ready? So, Matthew chapter 24, this is part two that we started this morning. Uh, we're going we're gonna to review it quickly, and then we're going to move right into uh, the new text. This is a... Um, this is a four-part series on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night in terms of being ready as we walk through Matthew chapter 24 and 25, an incredible discourse uh, of end times. It's all in red letters. It's spoken by Jesus. Jesus is 100% accurate in his prophecies. The Bible is 100% accurate in its prophecies. Um, some... of the prophecies that could have been fulfilled have been fulfilled precisely. 19 remain. 19% remained. How likely do you think those 19% are going to be fulfilled? The prophecies are predicted in incredible detail, and history pans them out. It bears them out with precision. Whether it's Daniel's two prophecy of the statue of the head of gold, the chest of silver, the belly of bronze, the legs of iron, the ten toes of iron and clay, which history bared out to be exactly as Daniel prophesied the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the, uh, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, as each of the elements increased in strength, maybe they decreased in riches, but they increased in strength into the Roman Empire, which was iron. And the fifth empire we're looking for, again, history prophesied to a T, and then history bared those prophecies out. Or whether it's the Daniel chapter 8 prophecy of the, of, the, of the goat that represented the Medes and the Persian, one horn was stronger than the other, taller than the other, and that represented strength. The Persians were stronger than the Medes, but they were in alliance. So there was a, excuse me, it was a ram, and they were running, and behind the ram was a goat with one horn, and the goat wasn't running, the goat was flying. 
And the goat cut the ram and trampled the ram, destroyed the ram, as the Greeks destroyed the Persians. And the one horn that the goat had was very strong indeed, and that was a picture of Alexander the Great. And in an untimely fashion, the prophecy predicted in 600 B.C., 300 years before the time of Alexander the Great, that the horn would be broken off because Alexander the Great died in his prime after at 33 years of age, after conquering the known world, and then forced smaller horns grew in its place but since Alexander the Great didn't have an heir to his empire his four generals courted the world and took over so four smaller horns grew in its place. I could go on and on and on of prophecies that were predicted with precise detail and history bared out those claims to a T. And in, Gen- in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 2, we see that Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple by Rome, which would have happened about 37 years after the time that Jesus prophesied it. Not one stone would be left on top of the next. I was there. I was in awe. It was so euphoric. It, it was excavated ground, first century stone that we were j- walking on around the temple walls. Jesus most certainly would have walked on these, on these stones. And there were, there, there were big stones that were the temple, and they were thrown off, and they were thrown off by Rome. And they were just scattered all down in this one area. And I just leaned against them, and I put my hands on them. And I thought to myself, these are the stones that the disciples were in awe of in Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. And these are the stones that Jesus prophesied wouldn't be standing on top of one another. And these are the stones that in 70 AD, just 37 years after the crucifixion of Christ, that were indeed toppled over. This history bears out that claim. And all of that to say this, we had better place our confidence on what Christ says. Now you get two preachers together, you'll have three interpretations of what Matthew 24 says. You read three commentaries, you'll have seven ideas of what it says. There are some things that most conservative, credible uh, theologians and commentaries agree upon. Uh, If you don't agree upon everything I say, that's entirely okay. But what I really like about Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is unlike some areas of prophecy, it's not incredible detail, but it's broad brush strokes so that Jesus gives us a very good idea of what's going to happen, the event is going to unfold, but the essence of Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the essence of Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is that we will all be ready for his return. We will all be ready for the rapture. And we will have hearts that don't dread his returning. Oh, I want to do things. I want to retire. I want to buy a house. I want to do this. I want to do that. We don't have hearts that dread his coming, but we have hearts that long for his coming. That's how you know you're ready. You have a heart that longs for Christ to return and whisk his church out of this environment. We have a heart that longs for Christ to establish his kingdom so that no more injustice and brutality and corruption and abusiveness and violence and catastrophes and tragedies and sorrow and mourning and despair and famine, rage, but the peace of God and the glory of Christ is our light and our provision. We long for that day. So Matthew chapter 24, let me quickly review. Jesus gave eight signs of the beginning of the end. Not the end, but the beginning of the end. In other words, Jesus said most assuredly, as we are told many places in Scripture, 
most assuredly, there is going to be an hour of testing upon the world. There is going to be a seven-year period tribulation. It is sorrow that will be born into the world. But there's contractions that precede the birth. As far as pregnancies go, you know that the birth is near when the contractions increase in what? Frequency and in intensity. When the contractions increase in frequency and in intensity, the birth is near. And when these eight signs increase in frequency and in intensity, the birth of sorrow, the seven-year tribulation, is at hand. So Jesus begins answering the disciples' questions about end times with eight signs of contractions, eight birth pangs. And as I walk through these quickly, ask yourself, are they increasing in intensity? And are they increasing in frequency? First is deception. Chapter 24, verse 4. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. They will lead many astray. I recently watched a documentary on Jim Jones. I don't know if you guys know of him. It's tragic, horrific, horrific. Uh, the, the depth of deception and the hundreds of people who were killed in Jonestown in Africa. He started out here in California setting up this, this city and... He began preaching the word, and then he threw the word across the crowded room. I saw a video. It was a packed-out room. He threw the word across the room. It landed on the ground, and everyone was just sort of frozen like, is lightning going to strike? And he said, I'm still alive, aren't I? Lightning didn't strike me, did it? Therefore, I'm stronger than the God of that book. And he goes on to say, you need a father figure, I'll be your father figure. You need a husband figure, I'll be your husband figure. You need God, I'll be your God. And he coerced so many people into drinking poison, and he killed many, many, many. And just an hour or two south of here, we have the tragedy of David Koresh in Waco. And people look at these insane individuals who thought that they were Christ and proclaimed themselves to be Christ. In just the last 50 years, there were some thousand world leaders who proclaimed to be Christ. And the world looks at that and they scoff at true Christianity and they say, see, Christianity isn't true. But listen, that doesn't discredit our message. That confirms our message. That bears out and corroborates the words of Christ. Jesus said it would be so, and it's a labor pang. It's a contraction of the birth of sorrow. And it's increasing in intensity, it's increasing in frequency, then we'll have divisions, verse 6 and 7. And you will hear of wars, that's a hot war, and rumors of wars, that's cold war, espionage. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Did you hear that? The end's not here yet. Now, we're going to have people rise up and say that they're Christ. We're going to have wars and rumors of war. And those are both increasing in frequency and in intensity. But Jesus said the end is not here yet. It's signs of the end, but it's not yet. He goes on. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. 
Nation rising against nation. I can't count. I'm not saying that we ought to be involved or we ought not to be involved. I'm just saying it's hard to keep up with the wars that the United States are involved in, whether we're fighting them directly or we're fighting them by empowering people with our training and military to fight. And the other sides are doing the same thing. It's hard to keep up with all the conflicts that we've been involved in and continue to be involved in. Divisions increase, wars and rumors of wars. In the 6,000-year world history of wars, I believe that there has been calculated seasons of peace of about only 200 years of the 6,000-year history of nations and tribes fighting one another. Wars and rumors of wars are increasing in intensity. And then disasters. And the events of the past week is what sparked the series. Many people have asked me, are we in the end times? And I wish I could say, oh, no, 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 just go back to your business. Just go back to not caring about eternity. Just go back to your comfortable lives. You're just fine. But I can't say that at all because all of these signs are increasing in intensity and frequency. Jesus said there will be disasters. There will be natural disasters. There will be agricultural disasters. There will be famine disasters. We read in verse 7. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Mexico City had an earthquake in uh, 1985 where an estimated, a low estimate, 5 to 10,000 people were killed. The earthquake hit just a week or two ago and at 8.1 or 8.2, more intense than that earthquake. It was more intense than any earthquake that's ever hit the country in the past 100 years. That's right on the hills of Hurricane Harvey, which was the costliest natural disaster in American history, and that was the week before Hurricane Irma that hit with such force. And this is becoming a common occurrence. We even have earthquakes here in Dallas and Fort Worth. It's increasing in in intensity. It's increasing in frequency. And defamation. Defamation of Christians and the church. We read in verse 8, all these are but the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations by my name's sake. It's something about the name of Jesus that heals and saves, but it's also something about the name of Jesus that offends and stirs up so much anger again in lawless and loveless hearts. And you look at all the people that we've seen beheaded in the past several months. Did you know that in all of the wars in world history, there have been more casualties in the wars of the last hundred years than in all of the wars in the past centuries combined? You realize there have been more martyrs who've been persecuted and killed for the name of Christ in the last handful of years than martyrs who've been killed in the name of Christ than all of history combined? And so ask yourself, is deception, are disasters, are wars, are the defamation of Christians increasing in intensity and frequency? But Jesus said, still, it's not the end yet. And then you look at desertion in verses 10. And we read, many will fall away, fall away from the faith. And they'll betray one another and hate one another. The greatest reason that people fall away from one another in the faith and betray one another and hate one another and their love waxes cold is because they just get so offended by one another. 
disinformation increases. And we continue to read in verse 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Well, isn't this the same as the Antichrist? No, the Antichrists are religious false prophets. This verse 11, this is simply disinformation. This is anybody, any leaders in positions of authority, authority who will and spin and become incredibly skilled at communicating disinformation in order for their own self-interest. A prophet of God communicates truth for the interest of God, even if it comes at incredible harm to his own self. False prophets spin disinformation, intentionally so, and they're highly skilled at it because it brings, uh, because it's in their own self-interest. And look at the political realm today on both sides of the aisle. They're experts at intentionally spinning disinformation, and you know they're spinning disinformation. And yet we got to choose between one of the two. Who spins it the best? It is what it is. And you look at the internet that is filled with disinformation. And you ask yourself, is disinformation increasing in intensity, in frequency, but it's still not the end? And then depravity increases. Verse 12, and because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. As, as lawlessness increases, love decreases. As lusts increase, love decreases. So that there's many children, and I counsel these families, there's many children at home who wonder where mama is tonight and she's out somewhere because lawlessness in her heart decreased and her capacity to love has decreased. And it is destroying families, and from my perspective, it is so obvious, it is destroying families in ever-increasing and intense measures. But the end is still not here. And then we move to the final sign that we are entering into the beginning of the end. And that is the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire world. And we read in verse 13 and 14, But the one who endures to the end will be saved... They don't, they're not saved because they endure to the end. They endure to the end because they're saved. And one of the ways that you know that somebody is truly saved is not because they walk an aisle and they fill out a card, but because their faith endures and their love for Christ endures. And they're not saved because they endured, they endure because they were truly saved. And the Spirit of Christ is in their heart. As John said, they went out among you and they left you because they were never one of you. I'm not saying that people can't be called to other ministries and other churches, but as far as departing from the faith and no longer loving Christ. And then we continue to read in verse 14, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then watch this, and then the end will come. Only today, only in our era, Only now is the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached to the entire world. It doesn't say that the entire world will be saved, but the gospel will be preached to the entire world. And now with our our transportation means, with our communication means, with our technology means, with with various missionary organizations, the gospel has gone out to the entire world. And we look at all of these signs 
You say, well, there's always been deception. There's always been division. There's always been disasters. There's always been defamation. There's always been disinformation. There's always been depravity. Yes, but never before with this intensity and with this frequency and never before coupled with the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ is going out to the entire world. And so Jesus says as a result, then the end will come. Are we living in the last days? According to Scripture, absolutely we are. Absolutely. We have never before seen all of these birth pangs, all of these contractions with such intensity, with such frequency, coupled with the reality that the gospel is covering the uttermost parts of the earth. It's time for the birth of sorrow for seven years upon the earth. Are you ready? Are you living for eternity? Are you eternally minded? Are you surrendered? Do you love Jesus so much that your heart longs for Jesus? Are you ready? Because it's time for the birth of the tribulation. And then we move to verse 15. And then Jesus continues... So when the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Sometimes we veer from prophetic teachings and we veer veer from prophetic scriptures. Well, one, because people guess at when Christ is returning, which he said don't do that. He said he doesn't even know. The Father will tell him. We know the seasons. We won't know the day or the hour. So when someone tells you the day and the hour, they're, they're blasphemous. They're contradicting scripture. Jesus didn't even dare to do that. I think, I think the latest day and hour is what, uh, September 23rd, I believe, is the latest prophecy, the day that Christ will return. People have been guessing all throughout history, and he never returns on that day. Jesus says, no man knows the date or the hour. But because of these, these false teachers, which again affirm that we're living in the last days, sometimes we say, oh, well, I just don't want to study it at all. But Jesus says, let the reader understand through the Spirit of Christ and sound theology and solid teaching and understanding Scripture by interpreting Scripture with Scripture, we can understand. When the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. The tribulation is born. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Some people read this and believe that this aspect is referencing the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's absolutely not the case. This is representing the seven-year tribulation because Jesus said, never before will there be tribulation before or after. And we also know in Jesus' teachings, we continue, it clearly culminates with the second coming of Christ and cosmic disorder as never before imagined and the elements melting and Christ returning. This is absolutely in reference to the seven-year tribulation. But it begins with the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Those are Jesus' words. Which means that Jesus goes 
from the birth pangs and the increasing intensity and frequency of the contractions right in to the tribulation three and a half years into it, or 1,290 days. By referencing the abomination of desolation. So in referencing the abomination of desolation, we'd be, I think, remiss not to take our Bibles and flip back into the Old Testament and into the book of Daniel and look exactly at what Jesus, look at exactly what Jesus was referencing. As he goes from the birth pangs to being three and a half years into this tribulation period. So if you go to Psalms and you start flipping right, Proverbs, um, Song of Solomon, then you get into the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then you'll be in Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and 25, and 26 and 27. I'm not going to teach this very in-depthly. I'm going to walk through this with a broad stroke pen, but I encourage you to go back and read through it, go back and pray through it. This is the kind of text that will put goosebumps on the back of your neck. This is the kind of text that will help you to realize this is not a man-made document. This book is inspired. Um, it outlines all of human history from 600 B.C. until the summation of human history and Christ establishing his kingdom on earth. Verse 24, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel writes, 70 weeks. What's a decade? How, how long is a decade? What? Ten years. So we have a measurement of time where a decade is ten years. The ancient Hebrews had a measurement of time called a week. And a week is seven years. We have a 365-day calendar. They had a 360-day calendar. So understanding that, we can continue. Seventy weeks, or 77-year increments, or 490 years, are decreed about your people in your holy city and then we go on to culminating history. To finish the transgression, put, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, Christ. To bring about everlasting salvation and righteousness, salvation in the church. To seal both vision and profit. To anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, this was written... In 600 B.C., the, uh, the, the temple was destroyed, the, the walls were destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So from the going out of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which occurred historically in 444 B.C., to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat and in troubled times. Read Nehemiah. We continue in verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. It's Christ. Cut off. And if from there, and I know I'm flying through this, but perhaps this could stir your curiosity to go home and read this and get a commentary and study this and research this on your own. So far... 483 years have unfolded. Between the going forth of the decree to rebuild the temple to Christ riding into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey on that, on that Passover in the spring of 32 AD, there, four, there were exactly 400 and four, 483 years from the issue of the command to Christ being crucified. And then the stopwatch stops ticking. 
It started ticking. That 490-year countdown started ticking in 444 B.C. when the decree went out to rebuild the temple. And then after 483 years, the stopwatch stopped ticking when Christ was crucified. So all of human history has been accounted for in this prophecy as far as 483 years are concerned. And now we go into the church age. And we've been in the church age for the last 2,000 years. And some people say, where's your Jesus? The apostles thought they were coming in his day, he was coming in their day, and he didn't return. Where's your Jesus? And we are reminded of 2 Peter chapter 3. Remember God's promise. He's going to return. And God is not slack in keeping his promise. And keep this one thing in mind, Peter writes. A day is like a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is like a day. He's returning again. You can count on that. And then he goes on to write in 2 Peter that the reason that the Lord has tarried his coming for the last 2,000 years can be summarized in two words, mercy and grace. He's willing that none should perish, but all should come to eternal life. We've quoted that, but that's the context that it's in. Why is your God tarrying his return? Well, because of his mercy and grace. He wants as many people to come into the kingdom, to come into salvation. It's his mercy and grace that that has kept him from returning and rapturing his church. So from the going forth to rebuild the temple in 444 B.C. to the crucifixion of Christ in 32 A.D., there were exactly 483 years when the Messiah was cut off. The stopwatch stopped ticking. We went in by God's mercy and grace into the church age where many people are coming into the kingdom because Christ is willing that none should perish. And so there is one more week remaining. And what's a week? Seven years. That's the seven-year tribulation. So when does the stopwatch begin ticking again? For the seven-year countdown. When somebody steps onto the world scene that we know is the Antichrist, but when he's born, when he graduates from college, when does the seven years begin ticking again? Well, let's read. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city... And the sanctuary. And the people who destroyed the city were the Romans. And he's a prince of these people. This is why in Daniel, the prophecy of the ten toes of iron. Remember, Rome is represented by iron and prophecy. And it's ten toes of iron and clay. So it's a federation of probably ten European nations that are closely unified together, probably with the common currency. And when a leader emerges from these people, and we know it's these people because it's the people who destroyed the temple, and which, which will be 70 AD, when he emerges, its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed, verse 27, this is when the final week, the final seven years begins counting down. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, seven-year period. There will be a seven-year covenant. Now, 
I can still see in my mind as a kid Jimmy Carter standing between the prime minister of Israel and the prime ministers and presidents and kings of the Arab world trying to establish peace. After Jimmy Carter did it, I can remember pictures of Reagan doing it. After that, I can remember pictures of George Bush Sr. doing it, and then pictures of Clinton, and then George W. Bush, and then, uh, and then pictures of, of Obama And then our current president will do it. It's what they do. They go and they try to establish peace and nobody's been able to do it. But this one leader will step onto the world scene. It'll be from the people who destroyed the temple. That will be a European leader. He will surface and he will succeed in what nobody's been able to do. And that's establish peace amongst Israel and all of their enemies around them who hate them and believe they should be wiped off the face of the earth. Christ says there is going to be war. And division in this world. And the Antichrist will step up and say, there's going to be peace. But then Christ will bring ultimate peace, but the Antichrist will bring a false peace that results in destruction like the world has never seen. And the moment these leaders get together, brokered and negotiated by that Antichrist, and you can read a description of him in Daniel chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 7, you can read a description of him in Revelation chapter 13, he is going to be eloquent, he is going to be intelligent, he is going to be charismatic, he is going to be purely arrogant, he is going to be empowered by Satan himself. And Satan is the father of lies, Jesus said. And when Satan lies, Jesus said he's speaking his native language. He can't speak without uttering lies. This Antichrist will be the master of spinning disinformation. And he's going to broker peace and negotiate peace. And the moment Israel and their enemies surround a table brokered by this Antichrist and they sign this covenant, at that moment, the seven-year countdown will begin ticking. And he will lead the world into a season of peace for three and a half years. Only half of the tribulation. But it's a false peace. It's a lot like if you've ever watched Jaws. You see the girl swimming out in the ocean. The stars are shining, the water's pretty, she's swimming, and it's peaceful. But then you hear the Jaws theme song. And you know there's about to be screaming and bubbles and blood. And he'll bring a peace. But the Jaws theme song is in the background. And it's a false peace. And it's going to result in destruction. Verse 27. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week. He shall put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. This tells us that one, the temple has to be rebuilt. It was destroyed in 70 AD. For him to put an end to the sacrifice, sacrifices have to be reinstated by the Jews. And for sacrifices to be reinstated by the Jews, the temple has to be rebuilt. But there's a problem with rebuilding the temple, and that's that there's a holy Muslim site where the temple should go. I've been there. And it would be an international crisis as the Jews, I think a population of some, I don't know, 20 million, I'm guessing, 
a country of 20 million are surrounded by 70 million Arabs who hate them and believe they should be wiped off the face of the earth. They have to be very delicate about this Dome of the Rock or Mosque of Omar that currently sits on top of Mount Moriah. I believe the Antichrist negotiation will barter something to the extent of taking that temple down. The Jews could take it down. It's in their country. Their guys with machine guns are walking all around it. So are Muslim guards walking all around it. So are Christians. It's an international crisis waiting to happen. And he's going to negotiate something so that the mosque of Omar is taken down, perhaps replaced, the temple is rebuilt. And everybody is going to think that he is the greatest genius in the world. And he he will be empowered by Satan himself. And he will be empowered and credibility will be rendered to him by a false prophet. There's speculation on what that might be, who that might be. But think about it. If he's a prince of the people who destroyed the temple, and the people who destroyed the temple were the Romans in 70 AD, which means he'll have a European background, he'll be very close to the Vatican. So you can kind of put two and two together on who you think the false prophet might be. So three and a half years is going to be a false peace, and then in three and a half years, he walks into the Holy of Holies. Now, we know that Jesus, the hand of God, tore the veil from top to bottom, and so for Christians, this isn't relevant. For Jews, this is an abomination. This Antichrist, after the temple being reinstated, after sacrifices being reinstated for three and a half years, This man, empowered by Satan, will walk across the courtyard of the temple. He will walk through the holy place. He will walk past the veil, which only the high priest was allowed to enter in that once a year, and that with incredible reverence. He will walk into the holy of holies. He will put an end to sacrifices. He will put some sort of image of himself or uh, some sort of resemblance of himself up. And there he will decree that you can't worship God. And the Bible even talks about even little g gods. He'll say you can't worship this God, you can't worship this God, you can't worship this God, this God. And you certainly can't worship the most divisive name of all of Jesus. Because we can look over the corridor of history and we can see that wars... And destruction and hate and division are the only thing that consistently emerge from religion. So I am putting an end to all religion, except for the worship of me. And he's going to spin some smooth speech. And this is what we talk about. And I'm, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That was three and a half years into this week, the seven-year period. We corroborate that. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And we read, And from that time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, There shall be 1,290 days. What's that? Three and a half years. 
Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, we see that halfway into that week, the abomination of desolation will occur. And after the abomination of desolation, there will be 1,290 years. That's exactly three and a half years. Back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Three and a half years into the tribulation, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is his. Paul corroborates this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. You can notate it and study it later or flip there with me now. The Thessalonian church was afraid that they missed the rapture, that the day of the Lord had already occurred. And Paul was writing them comforting words. And any time that we talk about end times, this is not something that should alarm Christians. This is not something that should scare Christians. We are a people of hope because as Cassandra said, yes, we are aware of world events, but we don't look to world events. We look to Christ and our heart longs for Him to return. So the closer we are to the return of Christ, the closer we are to the rapture, then the closer we are to our Lord and Savior. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to Him, this is the rapture. And the rapture and the second coming are two different things. The rapture is the church, Christians, meeting Christ up in the air during the tribulation period. The second coming is Christ coming down and planting His feet on the earth and setting up His kingdom. The rapture involves God taking the church out of this incredible season of tribulation. You say, but God has allowed His people to go through persecution many times in the past. God has allowed His church to endure persecution many times in the past. Yes, God allows His church to endure persecution, and you and I as followers of Christ should be enduring some persecution for following Christ, or probably not following Christ at all in this lost and dying world where Satan is the prince of the air. Following Jesus Christ doesn't incur persecution from the world. But when God raptures his church out of the world, he's not saving the world from persecution. He's not saving the church from persecution from the world. He's rescuing his church from his wrath and punishment poured out on sinful humanity. And there's a difference. He's not rescuing the church from persecution from the world. He's rescuing the church from his own wrath that's being poured out upon the world. That's the rapture. No different than when he rescued Noah from his wrath that was poured out on the world through the flood. No different than when he rescued Lot and his family from the wrath that was poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah. So he will rescue the church from his wrath that's poured out upon the world during the tribulation period. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, this isn't the second coming because Christ is coming down and touching His feet on the ground in the second coming. This is the rapture. We will be gathered together with Him, which is what Paul was referencing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he said, I'll tell you a secret. I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be translated. The dead in Christ will rise first, as Paul put in Thessalonians. 
Verse 2. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Jesus is coming September 23rd. Don't buy into that garbage. Either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come and gone. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed. The son of destruction. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God. In other words, he's going to put an end to all worship except for unto himself. Who opposes himself and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, which will be rebuilt, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may, reveal, so that he may be revealed in his time? What's restraining the Antichrist? The church. The Holy Spirit of Christ at work in the church. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. That's the rapture of the church. And when the lawlessness will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And that's the second coming. And we are out of time. And we are going to go in next week and see how Matthew 24 then begins paralleling with the seven seals that are unfolded in in Revelation chapter 6, 7, and 8. It's like if you remember in in elementary school, they would put transparencies on top of an overhead, and they would put them on top of each other, and they would parallel and overlap. Uh, Matthew 24, Revelation 6, 7, and 8 overlap. And all of this to say this. The essence of this teaching from Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 is this. Learn, verse 32, learn from the fig tree, learn this lesson, Jesus says. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know the end is near. We've already seen that the contractions are increased in intensity and frequency enough that the end is near. We've seen that the eighth contraction as far as the gospel of Christ being preached to the entire world is occurring. At the speed of light, at the speed of communication, the end is near. It's time for the tribulation to be born. So Jesus said in verse 36... But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And he says in verse 44, Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do do not expect. If I knew somebody was going to throw me a surprise birthday party. Because it's a surprise, and they're not going to tell me, I don't know the day, and I don't know the hour. But I know outside the grass will be green, 
and the sun will be hot because my birthday is in July. I know the season. I don't know the day or the hour, but I know the season. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, I'm coming back. We can look around. We are in that season. All eyes are on Christ. People, there's wars and rumors of war. There's political rhetoric all over the world, all over the place, going back and forth. These people have a nuclear weapon. These people tested this nuclear weapon. These people are crazy. Those people are crazy. These people are trying to kill every Christian they can find. But pray for Jerusalem. Watch out for Jerusalem. Especially what happens on Mount Moriah. All right, so would you guys stand with me, please? I mentioned this morning that I always, I always, I always hate to see a heavyweight fighter come into the ring and he's out of shape. It happened to Muhammad Ali. I loved it when Muhammad Ali was cash as clean. He's winning those gold medals in the Olympics. Man, he was smooth. But then he climbs in the ring to fight Larry Holmes. And Muhammad Ali looks like he'd just been eating nothing but McDonald's and hadn't been exercising. And he gets beat by Larry Holmes. It's very sad. When somebody's not ready, when they're not prepared, when they're not in shape, when they're slack. Same thing happened to Mike Tyson in my college days. I used to love, we, we used to have Mike Tyson parties. He was fighting. We would, we would pay the hundred bucks or whatever it was for HBO. We would watch Mike Tyson knock people out in the second round. He wouldn't even wear a robe going into the ring. He would just have his boxer's trunks on and he would just walk in there, bad as could be, and in two rounds knock people out. Mike Tyson. But then I remember watching Mike Tyson step into the ring with Evander Holyfield. He was not in shape. He was slack. He got beat by Evander Holyfield. Holyfield always stayed in shape. I always liked that about Holyfield. He was always prime time. But as far as followers of Jesus Christ, are you slack? Are you in shape? Are you ready for Christ to return? Does your heart long for Christ? Or is your heart filled with distractions of lust and the deceitfulness of riches and worries and cares and anxieties? Or do you have a heart for Christ? Are you in shape? You know if you're in shape. I mean, we may not know, but you know if you're in shape. You know if your heart loves Christ. You know if you're longing for Christ. Are you in shape? Or are you slack? Happens to everybody. David got slack. Solomon got slack. Peter got slack. We repent. We cast down distractions. We turn our heart towards Christ. And return to your first love. So this is how we're prepared. This is how we ready ourselves for the rapture. This is how we ready ourselves for Christ's return. This is how we ready ourselves as we are entering into the birth of sorrow. We return to our first love. You repent of anything that's inconsistent with the character of Christ. And you return to your first love so that you're spirit-filled. And then secondly, go into the highways and byways and compel everyone to come to Christ. So this is why we're having an invite Sunday on October the 1st. Now we don't we don't sell our possessions. We don't quit our jobs. We don't move to the mountains. We don't stare up into the sun until our eyes are sunburned, you know, looking for Christ to return. 
We expect him to return and we love him, but we live in the world, but not of the world because we work where we work and we live where we live because those people need Jesus. So we continue to plan and we continue to, to plant some, some petunias in our front yards and strike up conversations with our neighbors and build relationships because people need Jesus. We are in the world, but not of the world because they need Jesus. So we hope Christ returns tonight, but as a church family, we're going to gather as many people together as we can to come to Christ on Sunday, October the 1st. And if Christ does tarry his coming, that's why, because he's willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's why he's tarrying his coming, for us to round up souls. That's what it says in 2 Peter 3. This is the whole reason we're not raptured yet. Because he wants us to round up souls. Look, I, I'm not a perfect pastor. You guys who know me know that. Y'all tell me that a lot. But you also <laughs> encourage me a lot. And I appreciate the encouragement. You know I'm not a perfect pastor. But please follow my example in rounding up souls. I mean, I've got a passion for souls. And not a week goes by that I don't try to round up about 100 people. And I'm challenging all of you to invite three people to October 1st as we're starting this series, Breaking Chains. It's a series on spiritual warfare and walking in freedom. And I'm challenging you to invite three people and not casually invite them. Don't take no for an answer. Compel them. And in order to get your three, you're going to have to invite 30. I'm serious. I'm asking you to take that seriously. Christ is returning. What do we do about it? We repent, we return to our first love, and we go after souls. And there's incredible authority, there's incredible anointing, there's incredible power when we as a church family do this together. I'm asking everybody, 100% to do this. How many does it take to make a movement? How many does it take for HopeWorks to experience our own Pentecost? Ten? Twelve? The disciples were twelve? Uh, 120? That's how many were in the upper room praying on the day of Pentecost when they broke into 3,000? That's how many changed the world? What? Three? The inner circle? Twelve? 120? 3,000? It's not how many, but it's what percentage. It doesn't matter if there's 3, 12, 120, or 3,000. The number doesn't matter. What matters is the, per- is the percentage. A hundred percent of us. A hundred percent of us. Not one lacking. A hundred percent of us repent, return to our first love, and go after souls. And then hope works will experience our own Pentecost. Revival will break out in Fort Worth that will span the oceans. So I'm asking you, I'm challenging you, I'm compelling you to pray for souls, but don't just pray for souls, go after souls and compel them. And let's see many come to Christ and many set free. This morning I said, you know, October 1st, that's going to be the answer prayer to many people. And then this analogy just hit me right there on the spot. I said, this is going to be the answer prayer to many kids who are praying for their alcoholic father to come to Christ so that he lives in freedom. I just thought that I was just, just, just this analogy hit me. Out of the blue, 
the creative wheels were spinning. It's kind of caught up in the heat of the sermon. But you know what? Two girls, they're nine years old, they're cousins. They came down to the altar and they were on their knees and they were praying. I thought that's cool. It's cool to see them praying. Guess what they were praying for? Their alcoholic dad to come to Christ. That was the Holy Spirit who gave me that word. And there's people in your life who need Christ. Christ is returning. Let's round them up. Are you ready? I feel I'd be remiss if we didn't have an opportunity to repent, return to our first love. And so let's do that in worship. You can come here, you can pray, you can pray where you are, but let's just have a moment with the Lord and then I'll I'll close this out. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people that are ready, spiritually speaking, who are in shape, who have hearts who are longing for your return, and who have hearts that are, are passionately burdened for lost people. We pray that you would anoint us as we as a church go into the highways and byways and compel the lost, hurting, and hopeless to come in so they can be set free, so they can know you, and uh, Lord, their souls will be saved. Thank you for tearing your, your return for the sake of the lost. We pray that we would be a church that's ready and a church that's busy leading people to you. Anoint us, Lord, as we step out, 100% of us, as one. And we thank you in advance for a harvest of souls that will be HopeWorks version of Pentecost that ignites a revival. Praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.